following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Well, tonight we're moving ahead in our series in Galatians, so if you'd take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2, you may remember uh, if you were with us last week that uh, Pastor York finished talking about the end of chapter 1 in which Paul was rehearsing uh, the beginning of his testimony, talking about how he, uh, when he was first saved, was saved by a direct revelation uh, from Jesus. He did not learn this gospel second-hand or third-hand through other apostles. He did not learn this gospel from other men, but rather received the gospel directly by revelation from the Lord himself. Tonight, as we move into chapter 2, we'll be continuing Paul's uh, autobiographical remarks as he traces his own life and ministry. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, if you join me as we read. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, written for us by you, for the benefit of your church 2,000 years ago, and for the benefit of your church today. We pray that you would be with us as we look at this passage together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here in uh, Galatians chapter 2, Paul moves on uh, in his uh, review of his life, moving past his first visit to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 1, to talk about a second visit to Jerusalem that occurs now 14 years, most likely, most commentators think, after his conversion. And the first visit was three years after uh, the the Damascus Road, and here 14 years uh, after he goes up to Jerusalem again. And Uh, I think what we want to look at here tonight is that this visit that Paul makes to Jerusalem has a slightly different purpose or emphasis to it 
than the first visit to Jerusalem that Paul made that we looked at last week. Last week, you may remember that Paul's key key purpose in going to Jerusalem was to emphasize, or as he related the story, to emphasize that he went up and talked briefly to Peter, but he wasn't receiving the gospel from them. He was not being influenced or added to by the apostles in Jerusalem. He had the gospel by revelation from Christ. And that was the key point that Paul was trying to emphasize in his first visit uh, that he related last week. Today, we're we're looking uh, at a slightly different purpose. Instead, Paul is trying to emphasize today uh, that he went up to Jerusalem to interact with the apostles, and and he does so in a way that is is subtly rebuking or or countering uh, an argument that the false teachers in Galatia had been making. See, the the false teachers were were very good. And and when Paul first emphasizes, look, I didn't learn the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. False teachers were quick to seize on that and say, aha, see, we knew it. Paul didn't get his gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem, so he must be teaching a different gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. We've got the apostles in Jerusalem on our side, these false teachers were saying. They agree with us that you have to follow the Jewish law and that circumcision is important and that obeying these Jewish rites and, and, uh, and, and uh, festivals and, and laws. He's there on our side. But Paul, he just told you he didn't, he didn't learn anything from them. He didn't take anything from them. That's part of the problem. And so Paul is going to now emphasize or, or, or counter that argument with, with his account of this visit to Jerusalem. Here he's going to emphasize instead, you're right, I didn't learn the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem, but we are on the same page. I did go to Jerusalem again, and we did talk about the gospel. And James and Peter and John, these, these influential apostles, we agree. And that's the purpose of Paul's relating this, this second visit uh, here today. Well, so this is the, the broad goal that, that Paul has. Let's take a look at, at how he gets there. First of all, Paul addresses why he went up to Jerusalem in the first place. And if you look in verse 2, you'll see that Paul says several things. First, he says, I went up because of a revelation. And we see this uh, in Acts when Paul says that as a result of a vision from God, as, at the prompting of God himself, he went back to Jerusalem. And he went, Paul says, in order that he might discuss the gospel to make sure that, that Paul had not been running in vain. Now, this is a, an interesting analogy. Paul's pulling in running a race to give an analogy of what his fears are, what he's worried about in his ministry. When I think of running in vain, I think of a story I heard uh, about a family in our church recently who, who as a family, decided to run a 5K uh, over a holiday. And the family was running uh, the 5K, and as they finished, they were stunned to find out that one of their children had run incredibly fast, far faster at the time, much shorter than anything that they imagined. In fact, looking at the leaderboard, this child had the third place time in their division in the race. So they were dialoguing with their, their child, and, and they said, wow, you know, that was amazing. How fast did you run that second loop? And the child said, what second loop? And they quickly realized that they had only run one loop. See, this, this child had run in vain. It was a fairly easy race, a fairly successful race, but it wasn't the full race. 
And some have said or suggested that that's what Paul has in mind here, that he's worried that he's preaching the gospel of grace, but, but what if he has it wrong? And some people say, well, maybe Paul's wondering if he's been in vain because he hasn't had the right gospel. That's not the right interpretation here, though. Paul is not wondering whether he has the right gospel here. If you think back to chapter 1, which we've looked at in recent weeks, you'll remember that Paul said, I received this gospel straight from the Lord, straight from Christ himself. And he says, if anyone preaches a different gospel than what you heard from me, even if it's me, reject him. Let that person be accursed. Paul's not worried that he has the wrong gospel here. Rather, Paul's worried that his efforts to present this true gospel to the church will be in vain if the church is split over what the gospel itself is. If we follow the running analogy, Paul's much more worried that he runs the race, but his team members are taking the shortcuts, or his team members are running with burdens set on their backs, perhaps is a better analogy, and therefore the team is being hurt. Paul is worried that disagreement over what the gospel is will fracture the church and hinder the the presentation of the gospel and the faith of the people who are hearing the gospel. So this is why Paul went up to Jerusalem, to present the gospel, to discuss the gospel, to ensure that the church is united behind the true gospel, lest the missions work, lest the progression of the, the gospel of God and the kingdom of God would be in vain. So that's why he went up. There's no doubt that he went up with some anticipation and trepidation. You can only imagine, here's Paul. He knows he has the gospel. But these false teachers in Galatia have been proclaiming, oh no, the apostles would be on our side. They know the importance of being Jewish. And it's true, the apostles are Jewish. And, and you can only wonder what Paul's thinking. Will, will the church have the boldness and the confidence to stand up for what is right? Or is God's call, is God's call going to be uh, fractured and, and split apart by disagreement within the church? This is the issue that we're faced here. The issue specifically, as Paul states it, um, is one in which is the gospel for all nations or is the gospel still along the pattern of the Old Testament? You might remember in the Old Testament that anyone could become Jewish. Anyone could join the Jewish people, but to do so, they had to be circumcised first. They had to follow the Jewish law first, and then they could worship God rightly. And so the key question here is, is Christianity operating under the same principle? Do you need to be circumcised first, obey the Jewish law first, become Jewish first, and then believe in Christ? Or is the gospel of Christ available for all nations? That's the key issue that Paul is wrestling over, is faced with, as he heads back to Jerusalem. I shouldn't say wrestling over. He's not wrestling over. It's the the issue he's faced with. But I love how Paul describes the issue. If you look at verse 4, Paul describes the issue at stake here as an issue where false brothers have slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ in order to to enslave us. Paul's bringing in language of military espionage here. He's saying that these false teachers are, are slipping in, spying out freedom, looking for ways when, where they can trap us and enslave us with the Jewish law here. But Paul's description brings out the fact that at stake here isn't some theological or intellectual understanding of the gospel. At stake here is the freedom of the gospel or slavery. And I think as Paul's language 
is used here, he makes it clear that there is a slavery that we can fall off of on either side of the gospel. It's very common for Paul to use slavery as, a, as language to refer to our sin. Romans 6 would be one such passage you might think of. And there are other passages where Paul talks about being enslaved to our sin. And we know that slavery is a language that's used to describe our, our sin. And on the one hand, and when, when we are sinners without hope in God, we're trapped in slavery. Unless the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, we have no desire to please God. And as Romans 8 says, we cannot please God. We are unable to please God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We are relentless in our sin, in our efforts, in our pursuit to please ourselves, to satisfy ourselves, to meet our desires. That is slavery. I received, read a, an article this past week that emphasized this slavery so well to me. The article described a man who was caught up in the scene of pornography. And he was very outspoken about how, as a man, he was, was free to express his, his desires this way. However, this man ended up taking medication for an entirely different issue. And one of the side effects was that it killed his desire for pornography. And the article related this man's statement six months after beginning to take this medication. And I thought it was fascinating. He said, when I was involved in pornography, I thought I was exercising my freedom to do what I wanted. But now that I am freed from that habit, I see that I was actually trapped in a dreadful slavery. And I am so glad that I am free. What a great statement, a great picture of in sin, we think we're doing what we want to do, but we are enslaved. Now, as we look back to this passage, Paul here is talking about these Galatians, these, these Jewish Christians who were trying to bring the Galatians back into slavery. That's a bit of a, an unusual statement. It's not what we think of when we think of sin being slavery. They weren't arguing that the Galatians should re-engage in sin. They weren't arguing that the Galatians should throw off the law and do whatever they wanted. These false teachers were saying that you should keep the law more. You should, you should add law-keeping they were saying that, that you should add more obedience to you. So how is, how is that also slavery? It seems, it seems like we've got two opposite sides. Sin, slavery, and super law-keeping is slavery. How, how can that be? And yet, it is, it is very true. Without Christ, we're trapped in a slavery we can't escape. We live for ourselves, rely on ourselves, and have no desire or ability to please God in ourselves. And that's slavery. But if we swing to the other end of the spectrum and we rely on keeping the law in order to gain acceptance to God, we're still relying on ourselves. We're still enslaved to a standard of performance, the need to do certain things in order to be accepted by God. And if you think about keeping the law, you know, circumcision is sort of a lightning rod issue here. And circumcision is sort of a one-time thing. You're either circumcised or, or you're not circumcised. And so it can get a little bit blurred if we think about that. But when we realize that keeping the law is not a one-time decision, keeping the law is a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, constant demand to keep the law perfectly forever, it's very easy to see how this too is a slavery. If we are going to gain God's good opinion, his acceptance through law-keeping, we need a constant, perfect, forever, minute-by-minute obedience to the law, and that is a slavery, a burden we cannot handle. 
And so between sin on one side and law-keeping on the other, these two slaveries that Paul lays out for us, in between is the gospel of freedom that Paul declares. In between the slavery of sin that we cannot overcome and the slavery of laws that we cannot keep is the glorious freedom, the glorious gospel that Jesus has died, that Jesus has paid our penalty, and that Jesus is our hope by grace through faith alone. In between is this message that Jesus went through the cross to the grave in order to conquer sin and death. And his resurrection secured the approval of God that we can't earn. God looks on Jesus and says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, you are righteous, you are perfect. And yet, in faith we are united to Jesus so that God also looks on us and says, you are my beloved children. You I love. You are righteous. You will be with me forever. That is the glorious gospel. And when we trust Jesus as our only hope, our great Savior, we are united to him. And so in between these two slaveries is trusting in Jesus alone, our great hope, and delighting in our spirit-created desires to be holy as God created us to be. This is the glorious gospel that stands in between two slaveries that Paul is eager for us to escape. What freedom? It's done. It's done in Christ. We are free to be the holy people that God calls us to be through Christ, covered by the blood of Christ in the hope of Christ with the future of resurrection in Christ awaiting us. This is the gospel freedom that Paul declares. So why did Paul go up to Jerusalem? He went up to make sure that he had not been running in vain, to make sure that the church is united around the gospel. What is the gospel? It's this freedom, this message of freedom in Christ that lies in between the slavery of sin and law-keeping. Well, if that's the goal of Paul's trip, what was the result? What was the outcome of Paul's visit to the apostles? James, Peter, John, and the others in Jerusalem agreed with Paul and affirmed the gospel of freedom. In verse 9, if you look at verse 9, we have this this phrase, this statement that James and, and Peter and John extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and to Barnabas and Titus. Now, at least in our day and age, it's easy to, to think, well, great, you know, they shook their hands, you know. Is that really all that conclusive? This isn't just a handshake of greeting. This is a handshake of fellowship. This is an extension of the right hand of fellowship in Christ, united together in the gospel of Christ. It was an affirmation that they were one, that they were together, preaching the same gospel, the same salvation, and the same work of Christ. This, this passage emphasizes the, the agreement between Paul and the apostles in a very tangible way as well. If you look back to verse 3, back to, to uh, the beginning of the passage, Paul talks about how he brought Titus with him. He brought Titus along with him to Jerusalem, and, and Titus was a Gentile Christian. Titus was a Gentile who had come to Christ in Paul's ministry, but, but Titus had not been circumcised. So Titus, in this way, comes and it is sort of a a tangible test case for Paul to bring to Jerusalem and say, you know, how are the apostles going to respond when an actual Gentile, an uncircumcised person who who claims to have come to Christ stands in Jerusalem in front of them? What's what's going to happen? How are they going to react? And and you can imagine uh, Paul thinking, 
Sure, maybe the apostles will say, theoretically, I agree. Let's not make this theoretical. What happens when a real, live, uncircumcised Gentile walks into Jerusalem and says, I'm a Christian too? Will they fellowship with him? This is a test case. And, and as I thought about this, I thought, what a, what a great position to be in. Can you imagine being Titus? You know, Paul comes to you and is like, you know, hey, Titus, you know, I, I'd like to bring you with me to Jerusalem so that you can be kind of the center of the whole debate. You know, and we're, we're going to kind of put you up front and center and, and say, okay, guys, let's debate over this guy right here. Now that's, I don't know if that would be a very comfortable position to be in, to be Titus. But, but that's Titus. And so Titus is brought with Paul, and we're told in verse 3 that even Titus, who was with me, though he was Greek, was not forced to be circumcised. This is the tangible, real-life proof, the fellowship between Jew and Gentile, united in Christ, without any requirement of keeping the law, of being circumcised. That was the tangible proof that the apostles were united on this issue of the gospel. As we think about Paul's trip here, as we think about his visit to Jerusalem and about wrestling through the gospel, I want to think about a few notes of application to this passage as we, as we look back over it. First, first note, note the picture of unity, the picture of the unity of, ch- of the church that this passage brings out. You have, you have Paul, Barnabas, and Titus on the one hand, and you have Peter and John and uh, James on the other hand. And even within those groups, you, know, you, have, you have Paul, Barnabas, and Titus together, but they themselves are, are very diverse, diverse in nationality and background and, and much about them. And, and then you take John and, and Peter and James, and you only have to think back to the Gospels to realize that these guys were pretty different as well. You know, you think of John, this, this pastoral um, writer of love, and you think of Peter, this, you know, this, this dramatic, outspoken. These men that are mentioned here are very different. They're, they're different in nationality. They're, they're different in style. They're different in background. They're different in emphasis. They're different in preferences and how they act. These are very different people. And in one sense, it's, it's easy to look at these men who are talked about and say, wow, their differences sure seem to outweigh their similarities. And yet, what this passage emphasizes is that, on another hand, the differences were far less important, were far more minimal compared to their union, compared to the unity that they had as brothers in Christ. They had fellowship together in their Savior, and that outweighs all of these differences of personality and preference and, and background and culture. And this passage, as a result, gives us a fascinating picture of Paul, who's ready to fight tooth and nail for the gospel. He says, we will not yield for one moment the truth of the gospel. And yet he pays such little attention or to the, these various differences of style and personality and background and culture. You have a unity that challenges us, I think, on several levels. If you think first on, on a church-wide level, you think of, of us as a church facing a culture of Christianity that has been broken apart by, by denominations and, and different choices and, and theologies of, of far-ranging doctrinal differences, whether it be on, on eschatology or on music styles or on baptism or on... Uh, there are a range of issues that divide the church. How do we, as Christians, navigate this terrain of a fractured church? The principle that this passage gives us is to not yield for one moment over the truth of the gospel. 
and yet to extend the right hand of fellowship across cultural and stylistic backgrounds as we are one in Christ. Now, on the one hand, though, this isn't really very helpful. Um, If you think about it, of course, most people agree with that principle. Very few of us sit in the pew and think, boy, yeah, I'm really going to stay as far away from that guy who has a different musical preference than me. That's not the way we think about divides in the church. The question is, well, what is part of the gospel? What, what in the way that we worship and the way we go about things is wrapped up in the essence of the gospel and what is merely stylistic or preferential? That's really the key question that follows this, this principle here. And, of course, this is a, a huge topic to discuss, but I want to challenge us that our unity in Christ so dramatically outweighs the difference of personality, background, preference, style, that we should delight in our fellowship together in Christ even where our style or our culture or our preference isn't being met in a particular church. That's, that's the challenge to us um, as, as a church. And I think if we, we take this down to a more individual or, or personal level, the implication's even more challenging. Here, here we are, most of us members of a church of, of 1,200 members. And if you look around, most of us are not going to say, wow, yeah, you know, me and the other 1,199, we're all pretty much the same. Uh, you know, we, we pretty much agree on everything. We pretty much all like the same thing. No, that's not the way it happens. You've got 1,200 people. And some, some would say, well, you know, that's one of the, the benefits of, of a church that's so large is you can find the people who think like you and have the same preference. I would argue that's, that's the challenge. That's the challenge of a large church is to not circle up around the people with similar preferences and similar backgrounds and similar styles. The challenge is, are we willing and are we eager to delight in our fellowship and our union with Christ with all of the people in our congregation, with the people who maybe aren't the ones we would spend Friday night uh, you know, fellowshipping around dinner with, or who maybe aren't the people who we would want to have an hour-long conversation with, who aren't the people we would naturally associate. Is that the person where we're willing to say, we are united in Christ and I delightedly reach out my right hand of fellowship to you? Are those the kinds of actions that we are willing to take in the body to say, as I look around, yes, I am going to fight tooth and nail if the gospel of Christ, the gospel of salvation by faith alone, God's grace alone, if that's at risk, I will fight tooth and nail for that. But, but all of the other things that divide us and separate us or keep us in different parts of the church, are we willing to reach across our hand of fellowship and say, we are one in Christ. What a joy to be united in the fellowship of our Savior. That, I think, is the first challenge that we receive from this, this passage and this picture of the unity of the church. I think Martin Luther summed up both sides of this point well when he said, let this then be the conclusion of all together. As concerning our faith, we ought to be invincible. But touching charity, touching love, we ought to be soft and more flexible than a reed or leaf that is shaken in the wind, ready to yield in everything. What a beautiful balance of our strength for the truth of Christ and our charity, our love, our fellowship united in Christ. Well, secondly, note the affirmation that this passage gives of different gifts, different callings, and different ministries within the church. In verses 7 and 8, if you look back at those verses, we see a great uh, affirmation that Paul's ministry to the uncircumcised 
and Peter's ministry to the circumcised are both the same ministry of the, sa- of the same God, but to different people. The same God has called these two men to preach the same gospel, but in very different circumstances, to different backgrounds, to different people. And I think what this shows us is that different people in the church are going to be called to different ministries. And we know that elsewhere in the, gospel, or in the, uh, the uh, letters, Paul talks about how each person's been gifted with different abilities or callings, and you have apostles, and you have prophets, and you have teachers and evangelists, and, and you have a breakdown of gifts and callings in that way. But this passage shows us that in addition to a breakdown of gifts and specific gifts, there's also different areas of calling. There, there are people who are called to this ministry over here and, and to this ministry over here. And maybe some of you are called to children's ministry and some of you are called to minister in, in adult classes. And maybe some of you are called in a church in Harrisburg and some of you are called in a church in, in Lancaster. There are many different ministries that are all part of the work of the same God under the same gospel. And so the question we need to ask is, what am I being called to? Where's my ministry? What is God saying to me You are my child. Go. I have a ministry for you. I have a calling for you. What is that going to look like? And of course, this is not because we are able or we are strong or we can say, okay, okay, I got this ministry over here. No, it's because God has chosen to use his people, each one of us, in the different areas of ministry to grow his kingdom. So what is God calling you and what is God calling me to do for his kingdom? The other thing I think this shows us about this is that we shouldn't be jealous or ashamed or anxious or guilty or proud of the ministry God has given us. It's amazing how sin works in our hearts in the different ministries that we have. Maybe we see someone else who's having an extremely effective ministry and is delighting in their ministry and we think, wow, I sure wish I had that that ministry. Or, or maybe we see someone else who, who, who maybe isn't doing much, or maybe it doesn't seem like much is happening in their ministry, and you think, wow, you know, I'm sure, sure glad God didn't, you know, call me to that ministry. Or, and even just this past week, I was dialoguing with another youth pastor who was talking about how their church had an apartment complex right across the road, and they had reached out in, to this apartment complex, and, and nine unbelieving teens were coming to their youth group, and this pastor had prayed with a 10th grade student to receive Christ this past week. And, and immediately I start thinking, oh man, I wish, you know, I wish there was an apartment complex like that across from me, and you know, I wish I... You know, this, the sin works in our hearts to, to, to work this, this jealousy and this, this pride and this, this anxiety and, and, and as we compare ministries. But can you imagine, can you imagine Paul sort of scoffing at Peter's ministry or, or Peter taking taking pride over Paul and his ministry? No, that's not what happens. They rejoice in their, their unity and that they're both working in the same ministry for the same God. And I can certainly imagine Peter saying, yeah, well, here I am in Jerusalem, but Paul gets to go over across the whole world and he's given thousands converted. All... Now they are united under the same ministry of the same God. And that's the calling for us to rejoice and to be eager and to look for the ministry God is giving you and calling you to. And then to do it faithfully, trusting him for the results. Well, finally and very briefly, look at verse 10 for our last note. We're told at the end that the one command or one request that the Jewish apostles had of Paul was that he remember the poor. 
the very thing that Paul is eager to do. In this, uh, in this context, most commentators agree that the Jerusalem apostles are not urging Paul to remember every single poor person in the world, but are specifically urging Paul to remember the Jewish church and the Jewish Christians. You'll remember that Paul, on multiple occasions in Acts, collects money from the Gentile churches and brings them back to Jerusalem. And if you think of your history, um, you'll remember that there's an awful lot happening in and around Jerusalem. Famine, poverty, political hardship, political um, schisms, and it left the Jewish church in very difficult straits financially. And so uh, most commentators agree that, that the, the apostles are saying, go to the Gentiles, don't require them to be Jewish, but don't let them forget their brothers in Christ here in Jerusalem. But whether we view this as a narrower or a wider call, the theme of caring for the poor amongst God's people is consistent through all of Scripture. It's a call to those of us whom God has provided for, to those whom God has given much, to trust that God has given us enough, to trust that God has provided us with enough, that we can let go of those resources. And even when we have enough, maybe those resources are resources we're using to find security or to to find pleasure or to find identity in. And the call here is to say, God has given to you, now remember the poor. Remember those as a particular people. But I also think we need to think, okay, well, why is Paul being urged to remember the poor here? We shouldn't think about remember the poor in some sort of charity drive. This is not like, oh, there's the poor out there as this sort of amorphous group of people that we're supposed to remember or maybe give a check to a charity. No, we're supposed to remember the poor because they are united to us in Christ. They are our brothers in Christ. We're united together with them as particular people in the kingdom of God. And so we ought to be sharing resources, giving as God has provided for us to these people who we are brothers and sisters with in Christ. And that is why we have the call to remember the poor. It's the same principle of unity of the church. These are your brothers in Christ. Remember the poor who are among you. Well, Paul went to Jerusalem to fight for the truth of the gospel. And he came away united with the apostles in Jerusalem for the proclamation of Christ, delighting in the freedom we have in the true gospel of grace. I pray that we also will go forth into our week with the same unity, delighting in the same Savior, the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to unite your church, to bring us as people from diverse backgrounds and preferences and styles who are, who are different in so many ways, and yet all those differences fade in the background as we come together as one people in Christ. I pray that that would transform how we think about each other and how we act toward one another. I pray that we would delight together in the freedom we have, the freedom from the slavery of sin and the freedom of slavery of law-keeping and the burden of, of earning our own way. And I pray that we would rejoice this week, delight this week in Christ, proclaiming him where you have called us to do so. And may we do it for the praise of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.